welcome back to the Presto Music Podcast. I'm joined today by Amos Miller, who's a trombonist and founder member of Brass Quintet Onyx Brass, whose new album, The Sun is Free to Flow with the Sea, was released at the end of June on NMC Records. Amos has also played in pretty much every professional orchestra in the UK, as far as I can tell. Um, and until just a few weeks ago, he was also head of brass at the Royal Birmingham Conservatoire just up the road. As of September, he's moving to uh, the Royal College of Music in London. Amos, welcome. Hi, thank you for joining us. Thanks very much for having me. I hadn't realised until I saw it on the Conservatoire's webpage that you actually read psychology as an undergraduate, which is quite cool. Have you found that has been useful in your ensuing musical career? <laughs> um, it's a good question. I, I would say it's been useful in the sense that I'm interested in people and I think particularly working in a conservatoire um, environment and where you're looking at the way young people transition from school to university, which I think is becoming an ever bigger jump um, post-COVID especially, but even before that, I think the advent of the smartphone has brought the kind of world into young people's bedrooms rather than going out and finding it. So I think the jump to independent learning has been a big thing. So I think that as as having an interest in it has been has been a good thing. I, I don't think, I mean, the course I did, I was lucky enough to blag my way into Oxford and the course there was, um, it was called experimental psychology and it was very scientific indeed. So it was quite reductionist. So I, I wouldn't say I've, I've learned many people skills through it, but uh, it certainly was a, a broadening education, definitely. It's interesting you mentioned that about the sort of the jump from leaving school to university. I remember when I started uni, which was longer ago than I really care to admit, there was still like the first lectures were catching people up because different people would have different holes in what they knew when they arrived. Is that? Do you think that's become more the case? Um, possibly. I think in a music college, though, I mean, obviously, there are people have different academic levels for the academic side of the course, but they're, they're there basically because they can play their instrument well. Um, so and people are at different levels in their instrument. And, and but that for me, yes, no, I think you're right. I think some people need to be sorted, but I think it's the independence of the learning that needs the most support. It's not so much the first study thing is it's about how you organize your time when suddenly you're in a situation where you don't have somebody kicking your backside if you don't hand something in until at the point at which it's more serious if that makes sense so uh your ensemble onyx brass turns 30 this year and among other things the album is your kind of 30th birthday present to yourselves um take us back where and how did this all begin back in i guess it must have been 1993 Exactly. Um, well, we were, the five of us, the original five members were originally uh, members of the National Youth Orchestra. Um, I was the kind of glue in the sense that I was in the NYO for a ludicrously long time because I got in very young and I was there and I went to university, which meant you could then stay in because if you go to music college, you have to leave. So I was in the NYO for six years. So the original members were were were, f- were from the NYO um, and that's where we get our name from because it's a slightly cheesy anagram of XNYO. Oh, I had uh, I had not took that. That's really dumb of me. Well, no. Why should you? Uh, but no, not many people do. But it's um, yeah, that was why we called that. Um, and yeah, it was it was five people who who we hoped would make a, a nice noise. I mean, I think a brass quintet sort of lives and dies by the standard of its trumpet players. Um, and what the original the original lineup was suggested to us was was based around the horn, trombone, and tuba in the sense that the three the three original members we felt that we made a really homogenous sound together and it was a platform for two trumpets to do their brilliant thing on, on top. Kind of. So that was the kind of, it was, it was a sonic concept. <laughs> if that doesn't sound too presentious is why we started. And I think we also felt, I, I mean, I think it's probably fair to say that the driving force of the group over the, over the decades has been uh, the tuba player, Dave and I, 
Dave and me, I should say, um, in the sense that, and I suspect that possibly comes from the fact that in an orchestra, a trombone and a tuba, it was, it's good, really great, fantastic fun to be part of. We don't often get to express ourselves um, either, you know, expressively or creatively or intellectually. It's about being a master sort of cabinet maker in the back and doing your little bits as well as you can, but it's not about kind of creative expression. So I think for us, the quintet was a place where we could uh, flex our kind of playing a tune muscles and that kind of thing. So that, that, that was, I think that, so that was the, that was the genesis of it really. And we've always had an interest in creating new music, but there are a lot of really, really good brass groups around the world. There's some really incredible ones. Uh, I have to confess to finding some of them slightly frustrating in the sense that they've got five incredible players, um, but they're not really looking forward always that they're, they're playing stuff that is arrangements of other things all the time. And there's a play, massive place for that, but there's a, there's a tendency to go down the, what I would somewhat pejoratively call the kind of cheese route. And yeah, um, I saw it described somewhere as almost pops kind of. Yeah. Repertoire. And, and that, that, just, that end of it. Yeah. And there's a, there's massively a place for that, but we have always felt really strongly that I think you underestimate audiences at your peril. Um, and I think that, the, what we always strive to do is engage audiences and and in, in, by contextualizing the new stuff we play. I mean, I, there's been very, very, very few concerts in 30 years where we haven't played at least one contemporary piece. And we always try and introduce it in such a way that it allows audiences who might not otherwise gravitate towards that kind of thing to be able to get a handle on it when they listen to it and, and be able to understand what the composer's doing or something about the techniques they're using or what the emotions were of the composer when they wrote it or some way that people could get a handle on it. Because... I think people, audiences are scared that if they don't understand it, it means they've failed. And I think really strongly, I, I didn't do a music degree. And in fact, the last academic music I did was when I was 14. So I still have to occasionally to do Father Charles Goes Down when I'm just working out what a key signature is, just to remember, remind myself what the sharps are called. You know, I don't, I don't have an academic music background. And I think having permission to enjoy something without understanding it is really important. And I think that's one of the ways where classical music sometimes falls down because I think you, know, you put your tails on and then you've immediately got this kind of barrier between you and the audience and they look at, they, they think, oh gosh, that must be something really, really special and posh. And I, I, I never did it and therefore I don't understand it and therefore it's not for me. And I think that's absolute nonsense. If that, you know, if that isn't too strong a word. No, no, I, th I think, I think there's actually quite a move towards that i'm just thinking of like there's a lot of there seems to be a lot of ensembles that are presenting it in a more informal way like you know just not having the tailcoats and not having you know black and black as people increasingly wear but just like putting it putting it kind of among people exactly and not and not being fearful of playing what might be ostensibly uh, knotty knotty and complicated music I've I've got three lucky enough to have three kids and I, when my eldest two are now in their twenties when they when they were little I took them to see some um, Rombert dance company it was a triple bill where I was playing one number not the others and it was incredibly abstract and I, I can't remember who wrote the piece that we, we were watching but the dancing was incredibly abstract and the music was incredibly atonal and they both really loved it they there's you know the, the, the innocence of that they were just making up their own stories and they thought it was interesting we, we learn how to judge stuff too soon I think. Let's have a little bit then of something back from those early days. This is the opening of John Taverner's Trisagion from a recording that came out on Intim Musik in 1998.
30 years is a long time for an ensemble. This feels like a slightly pretentious question, but I want to ask anyway. Do you think Onyx Brass's approach has changed in that time? And if so, how? Gosh, that is a good question. That's not pretentious at all. I think it's a very good question. Um, I don't think it really has, to be honest. I, I think I think we've got sort of, I don't know, three things that, that drive us. Um, one is just the joy of playing together. And we've always been really good mates. And I think if given the fact that there are almost no full-time brass ensembles in the world. I think there's one, actually, one full-time brass ensemble in the world, um, Spanish brass, who do everything together. Um, but other than that, I don't think there's any full... So you, we're all juggling really, really busy schedules. You know, we've got members who are in the Royal Ballet Symphonia, and L- were in the LSO now in the BBC Symphony, CBSO, RAF, English National Opera. You know, there's a whole kind of... So you can imagine the diary juggling and the WhatsApp threads are pretty complex if you to, to 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 enable you to have the energy emotionally to kind of be bothered to do that you have to really want to and we love seeing each other it's it's we're a bunch of mates and we, we, so that's the first thing that drives us and that hasn't changed in 30 years i think uh the joy of just trying to play new music to audiences for brass that is challenging us and see positive responses to it from audiences has as is driving us i think we we yeah i mean i feel slightly i don't know the response to this album has been really incredibly positive uh, in a way that has been really really cheering actually i mean we we didn't do any behind the scenes pushing at all and it got into the classical charts in the first week it was released which is for an obscure kind of brass quintet cd is really really pleasing um so i think we've just plowed on just carried on just kind of beating the drum and banging our heads against the wall and and eventually people more people are listening which is really nice so no i don't my answer is no it's a very long-winded answer but no i don't think we've changed much you've always i guess you've always had that interest in in the contemporary and the new music yeah. is pushing the envelope that's yeah. always been there yeah definitely i mean i think i mean if, if you include some of the composition workshops we've done over the years for, for conservatoires and i mean we've certainly premiered i don't know getting on for 250 pieces probably in that time the release notes to the the album mentioned something a little bit surprising some of these works although they are your sort of 30th anniversary bash they've also some of them have been gestating for quite a while i think the the Mark Anthony Turnage Onyx 30 and the Erlen Wallen Onyx, those seem to have been in the works for quite a while. What's that been like? Did the finished product actually bear any resemblance to how they were first looking? Ah, um, well, interestingly, I don't, I think they've been gestating in the sense that I've been, I, I've, I've sort of been stalking the composers for a long time rather than it has taken them that long to write it, if that makes sense. So, um, and we have always been, other than with the kind of length of the piece, which obviously has bearings on cost and all that kind of stuff, um, other than the length of the piece, we've always been incredibly f- free with composers. I've never really said to a composer ever, you must write us this style or this, because I just think that's... We've just always found that if you just ask people to write what, can, what occurs to them and is in their heart at a given moment, you get a really honest and beautiful piece because it's come straight from them. So we've never been prescriptive. So, yeah, I mean, in, in Mark Anthony Turner's case, I, I was... 
I was on trial with the BBC Symphony Orchestra for Principal Trombone back in 2003, I think, when they were doing their um, Total Immersion weekend with Turnage's music. And I absolutely loved it. I love Turnage's music. And so I just kind of chatted him up a bit at the break and so said, do you ever fancy writing in a brass quintet? And he said, yeah, a bit busy in the moment, but maybe someday. And, you know, sent the, the odd email in the interim, in, intervening kind of 20 years. And then he he wrote a con- clarinet concerto for uh, uh, somebody who's one of his best pals, who also happens to be a pal of mine, and got chatting about it. And I think that's jo- clarinet player called John Karnak. And I think John um, obviously put in a word for us. So And Mark had a little gap in his schedule. So uh, he, that, that, that's how that came about. Erilyn, actually, I, I knew I had come across her brother, Byron, originally, who's an amazing jazz trumpet player. And I happened to bump into Erilyn on Lordship Lane in East Dulwich and, you know, 15 years ago or something and said, and the original concept was that she'd write a piece. We, we were planning a jazz, the, the Onyx Noir album, which is two albums ago for an MC. Um, we were planning a kind of jazz-inspired disc. And so she the original concept was she'd write a piece for Byron to play with the quintet. And then she she's just got even more super busy. So... Uh, I basically our recording date was looming with Erilyn and I, and I just kept nagging her and said I know you're really really busy and, and eventually that's why it's a, quite a short piece because she's snowed under schedule wise but it, it's a short piece but my god it's powerful it's really it's quite something that um, yeah so that was that was the most that was the one that came in the, the nearest to the session <laughs> let's hear uh, the beginning of that piece actually now the this is Erilyn Bolland's Onyx <laughs> One piece that really stands out for me on the album is Ashani Perimpanayagam's Music for My Stolen Breath, which has got a really raw point of origin. I'm reading about it in the notes. It's based on her recordings of her own breathing exercises, which she was using as sort of recovering from being subjected to racist abuse in her workplace, which is really, really personal, really vulnerable. Do you approach works like that differently to ones that are... I guess more abstract or at least less, you know, a little bit more distance from, from, from oneself. That's a good question. Um, I, I, I would hope that we would approach every piece that we do with the same level of commitment and sincerity and, you know, trying to really honor the composer's intentions because anything somebody creates is really personal. So I'd hope we'd always be equally respectful, but I think the difference probably would be with Ishani's piece is that we would, it, it is in the way we would present it in a concert situation um, because it needs a bit of origin. It needs a bit of background. And I think it's really important to, that there's so much gaslighting that goes on around, around um, people who've been victims of racist abuse in, in terms of the, the sense that they, they, they can end up feeling like they're imagining it. And it's, and it's, um, so there's something quite, hopefully something quite, um, what's the right word for this but something quite positive hopefully for 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 somebody who who just to see five heterosexual white middle-aged white blokes who are the, in a literally middle class i mean all five of us are in the position of the greatest p- privilege of anybody in society and 
if we can present that piece with with the requisite sort of love and respect um in a way that enables the audience to sort of it's, as you say it's intensely personal it's a sort of transcription it was less less of her breathing exercises actually more that the, the transcription of her kind of panicky sort of anxiety breathings oh i hadn't realized that so it's even more in the immediate moment of responding it, exactly so when we commissioned when we originally commissioned the piece it actually that's when this all was kicking off at her place of work and she she kept trying to start a piece in a kind of more trad i am creating something i am sitting down writing and her creative process just wasn't working and so she thought well the way i'm starting because i'm basically having these constant panicky anxiety things that are happening i'm going to transcribe what my breathing sounds like um and actually we've performed that piece um two or three times now and it's had the most extraordinary because it's so quiet if you're listening to it on on if you're listening to it on the on the disc or streaming i would recommend headphones for it because it's it's incredibly quiet for most of the piece and the the sort of silence that we've had when we performed it has been really quite amazing and it's had a really really powerful response i think um and I, i'm really hoping for Ashani that that's been a sort of validating experience not validating it's the wrong word but it's been a, a kind of empowering experience to, to feel her her you know one of the lowest moments in her life well one of the lowest moments anyone could possibly have when they go through something as horrific as that sort of being being really listened to being heard in, in a public space i think hopefully is quite powerful yeah i, I mean certainly you, you can always tell when an audience is just sits there in total silence after a, a piece yeah. until it's really hit them yeah, no, definitely. Um, and yeah, no, it's, and because it's so quiet in a live performance space, it's, it's like those teachers when you have a primary school, you've got the teachers who shout to make the class quiet, and the teachers who start talking quieter. And they're always the more effective approach, I always think. And it's a bit like that. People really sort of start really listening. And I, I, yeah, it's, I, I'm really looking forward to sort of playing that pretty regularly in our programmes because I think it's I think it's really important. Let's have the beginning of that then. This is the opening of Ashani Perimpinayagam's Music for My Stolen Breath. Sometimes I like to ask string quartets and the composers who write for them about the format's role today, given its long and illustrious history. Um, the brass quintet is a bit newer, seems to have really taken its current form in the 1950s in the US. But since then, you know, loads of people have been really hard at work producing 
not just a huge number of great transcriptions that you mentioned earlier, but also this amazing canon of, I suppose, native brass quintet repertoire, if you know what I mean. Malcolm Arnold, Derek Bourgeois, so many more. I found out there's one by Andre Previn, which I think is amazing, and I haven't had time to listen. Four outings for brass, his piece. But, but what do you think the sort of the place or the role is for the brass quintet as a format and as a sort of, you know, coherent thing in today's classical landscape? Well, I, I think first and foremost, it's, it, like the string quartet, it, it's which is just the reason it's so successful is because it just works. It's just a beautiful blend of sounds, and I think um, we we believe firmly, otherwise we wouldn't have been doing it for all these years. I think that the, the format of two trumpets, who are quite often so historically have some kind of fanfaronic role, way pre chain music, that kind of antiphonal, you know, back to Gabrielli days, you have this sort of antiphonal effect of cornetti in, in a cathedral space. I think, and then against the kind of really organ like voice of a horn trombone and tuba together i just think it really works well as a, as a sound group and whether you're transcribing things i mean i think things like fugues which we spent a long time you know we did a disc of shostakovich and bach fugues a long time ago and uh, the, the the way you can pick out the individual entry in a fugue is is really incredibly clear the clarity of articulation in the brass group really works i think so yeah, I just uh, we're just really hoping that people can. I mean, I think we one of the things we've slightly battled against is is um, preconceptions of brass being really horrifically loud and bombastic, and um, and that brass players are a bit like that too, and we're all hooligans and drink too much and all that. And uh, you know, I mean, I know stereotypes quite often have have elements of truth in their origin, but that it gets a bit wearing. That and it, what's what's you know, we quite often start our recitals with something very quiet because it's just the people go, "Oh, that sounds nice." I didn't realise you could sound quiet. I mean, yeah, <laughs> the funny story from when our our first ever professional engagement um, at this music society. Um, it was made quite clear to us that the chairperson of the music society committee had been outvoted in, and he really didn't want to have a brass group. And uh, when he was announcing us to, before we came on stage, it was our first ever concert. When he was announcing us, we're always standing in the wings. He said, I'm, I'm absolutely delighted to announce that we have uh, the cool string quartet coming for our next concert in two weeks. And in the meantime, here's Onyx Brass. <laughs> and luckily it made us all laugh so much that when we walked on we were already really smiling and looking at home and yeah. so yeah there's been a bit of we haven't had that since but so I mean, that's it, like that reminds me of the sort of Humph and later Jack D on um I'm sorry I haven't a clue giving the impression that he really doesn't want to be there and hates everyone yeah <laughs> I didn't it, think people did that in real life no no it was it was it was a real it was a real moment it really stuck stuck with but, but very funny really funny <laughs> so yeah I mean I think I think yeah I think there are preconceptions still to be battled, but I think hopefully we've we've gone some way to. I mean, for example, the Tunnel Trust is this absolutely estimable concert to organisation which which puts on funds young chamber groups to go on tours around Scotland to to venues that are really really small and wouldn't otherwise be able to afford anything other than a solo piano player. Maybe they wouldn't be able to afford to have a bigger group, and the Tunnel Trust. Uh, uh, sponsors that and um we had auditioned for it three years in a row and they, every year they said oh gosh you are fantastic what a great group but i don't know oh, i don't know i don't sure about our audiences whether they're ready for brass yet and in the fourth year we applied they were they said look you're so persistent we'll just do it and see what they say and, and I, I, i'm proud to say i think we were trailblazers because they've had seven or eight groups do it since then um brass groups so and we had the best tour you know real career highlight was playing some really hardcore contemporary music in the in the hotel living room in Lockerbie in the Lockerbie hotel where you could hear the sounds of washing up going on in the back and we had an audience maybe about 25 30 people and they were 
the most engaged, friendliest, loveliest. It was a real highlight for me, that that concert particularly. Amos, thank you once again for joining us. It's been super great to talk to you and look back over sort of the three decades of Onyx Brass and hopefully plenty more to come. Thank you very much. Thank you for having us uh, on, on, on your estimable podcast. I don't know if it's estimable, but it's certainly certainly a podcast. Um, <laughs> so The Sun is Free to Flow with the Sea was released at the end of June on NMC Recordings. It's available on CD to download and to stream on the new Presto streaming service. My thanks go once again to Amos Miller for joining me today and to our producer at Presto, Matt Groom. And to play us out, here's something that you mentioned earlier, actually, Amos, uh, the conclusion of Bach's Fugue in D Major from Book One of the Well-Tempered Clavier from Onyx Brass's 2008 album of Bach and Shostakovich transcriptions, which was on Chandos Records. Mm-hmm.